Okay, we have another episode. I just had a BLT, so I'm full. <laughs> and uh, I, today we have Carl, and we're going to talk about the let's see the Communist Party of China's relationship to Africa. Because there's so many aspects to this. You know, there's one aspect I hear online that um, you know China's putting Africa and other countries at debt traps. There have been videos released of you know. Uh, on the, in the West propaganda videos trying to paint China or Chinese people as like anti-Black. And I guess we're going to talk about the history <clears throat> of the Communist Party of China and Africa. So Carl, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thank you, Rick, for inviting me back again on your podcast. My name is Carl Za. I am a podcaster. I'm the host of the Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions, cultural history and politics. Um, and I, my, my own personal background is that I was born in China in 1976, one month after Mao passed away. And I... <laughs> grew up until I was 13 years old in China. And then I came to United States and I lived in US for almost 30 years. Um, now I have repatriated back to East Asia. I'm currently living on the island of Bali in Indonesia. And my, you know, my, my interest has always been history and, uh, and geopolitics. So uh, this is, uh, you know, it's great that you invite me to talk about China and Africa, because there's actually a lot to talk about. Um, so is, is that intro introduction good enough? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think yeah, this is part of the, the Carl series on this podcast, which I'm grateful for. And, um, you know, I think it's like 11 or 14, between 11 and 14 videos we have on this podcast with you. And I think it's a really good series. Uh, but... This is something that I really, you know, and we, we kind of talk about misconceptions of, you know, people have in the West and China or Chinese history. But I do want to talk about this. So maybe we should start with the history part first of uh, what is the relationship of the Communist Party of China with Africa when it comes to revolutionary uh, struggle and um, decolonization, you know, or uh, at the analysis of colonization and decolonization. Because I, to me, in my point of view, the Communist Party of China represents decolonization of China because China was colonized by so many people. So when, when, the, when the Communist Party came in, they, they, they you know, set up their own uh, you know, uh, local structures, local dec decolonial structures, we say, you know, revolutionary structures. So thank you. Yeah. Um... China and Africa relation actually go way back. I mean, there, there are indications that um, there have been trading relationship going, you know, even before the Christian era. Uh, but what, what we do have written resources that confirms there was a famous uh, Chinese traveler, Duan Huan, who had uh, who was an officer in the in the Tang army? Uh, he participated in the Battle of Talas in 1751, uh, when the Ta the army of Tang Empire clashed with the army of the of the Arab Caliphate, and the the Tang army was defeated. So Duan Huang was taken a prisoner uh, back to Kufa in President present-day Iraq, but he eventually won his freedom and he became um, uh, 
uh, emissary uh, for the Arab cal uh, Caliphate. And he was on his last trip, he was sent down to the Horn of Africa, uh, you know, representing the Arab Caliphate. And for his service, he won his freedom. And, and he from, from Horn of Africa, he took a ship uh, sailing all the way back to China. This happened in 1760s. So we, from his uh, description, from his description of his travels, you know, we that's one of the first uh, detailed description in Chinese about African continent and the people live live there. And starting from from Tang, starting from Tang Dynasty, there's starting to be a more trade relationship established between China and Africa, especially the East East Africa and coast. Um, in, you know, for, for archaeological evidence, we know a lot of Song Dynasty coins have been unearthed in East Africa, and uh, and and we also have records of Chinese merchants traveling on ships to East Africa to tr trade. Usually, the trade involved like por uh, exchange Chinese silk and porcelain for African uh, products. Then uh, the most famous. Uh, trip is actually the Ming Dynasty Admiral Zheng He, who famously led his uh, expedition all around the world. And on his uh, last two trips, he made it to both the Horn of Africa and all the way down the African coast, uh, reaching as far down as Kenya. And uh, the, the, you know, we still have to this day, we still have uh, we still still unearthing a lot of Ming Dynasty porcelains, which was in high demand in Africa back then, and and this is the kind of the history before the European colonialism arriving Africa. So about uh, eighty years after Zheng He's voyage, uh, then the Portuguese they rounded the the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and they, they came into the Indian Ocean base and they started their um, they started their colonial empire and that that's that marked the kind of the age of uh, uh, European colonialism in Asia and and since then uh, there was actually a lot of um, parallel experiences between Africa and China under colonialism. So um, after the British gained entry to China via two opium wars, uh, in 18, around 1890s, the British uh, also forced themselves, uh, to, they forced China to, con um, to give, grant them a concession in Shandong province around Wei Hai Wei. Uh, it's, a, it's a natural harbor um uh near near beijing uh and and then british started immediately to exploit the chinese laborers in their in their colony they at the time uh british also acquired south africa as its own colony and to to they first option first thing they try to do once they acquire the chinese colony is they try to explore the chinese labor so they had, um, uh, they put out notice trying to recruit Chinese workers for to work in the mines of uh, South Africa because mining was uh, one of the main um, industries in South 
in colonial South Africa, and and they thought they could, uh, you know, British saw what Chinese labor did, uh, you know, building the railroads in North America. And so they wanted, they wanted to, uh, you know, leverage that cheap Chinese labor for their, for their mining companies. And, and so they had these uh, unscrupulous middlemen uh, trying to recruit Chinese laborers to go work in the mines of Africa. And there's a lot of exploitation because, uh, you know, the, a lot of the workers, they were promised high wages. And that's why they signed up uh, by the, by the, by the time they arriving, uh, most of them are also illiterate. So they didn't know about the contract they were signing. And when they arrived in South Africa, they basically lived in virtual slavery conditions. Uh, they're, uh, they, they, they were, they lived in, in camps. Uh, they were not allowed to, to go outside of the working camps. And they, you know, the, the working conditions was horrendous. They they also um, you know the uh, to to enforce camp discipline, uh, you know British had these um, uh, they're 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 practicing uh, you know they they had they had people regularly whipping the workers to keep to keep them in line to prevent them from revolting, and and a lot of the the pay that was originally promised workers were actually taken away. Uh, you know, by the middleman and the people who 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 uh, ended up working mines actually work for pittance, uh, and this this actually created a lot of problems. But this this is kind of just a one facet of uh, kind of the European colonialism, both in China and and uh, and Africa, um, and then in nineteen. Um, uh, in 1912, after you know Sun Yat-sen uh, led the Chinese Revolution uh, overthrow the Qing Dynasty, um, China started to establish official relationship with South Africa, and that's also uh, when a Chinese community became established there. Uh, you know, initially because the miners, uh, but eventually the when the uh, when 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 the British realize uh, uh, running this kind of slavery camp with Chinese workers created a whole bunch of other problems because, you know, uh, understandably, the Chinese wasn't very, um, very enthusiastic about working hard, uh, you know, when you when you try to work them like slaves. So eventually they uh, British sent the sent these Chinese miners back to China, but they uh, but then Chinese traders uh merchants start to show up and so that's that's the start of the, the the chinese community in on the continent of africa you started in south africa and then um with the establishment of um and and also during the um you know in africa there's various european colonies for for example you know french had madagascar so there's also chinese immigration into madagascar um and into different the french french held colonies uh especially the merchants from Wenzhou, which is in the southeast coast of china a lot of them went to france during um during World War One, a lot of the Chinese labor were recruited uh, to work in the Western Front in Europe. Uh, but after World War One, 
ended uh, these Chinese lab. Some of these Chinese laborers, you know, having acquired French uh, French skill, language skills, they they went to settle down in French colonies in in both West and East Africa. So this is the start of the Chinese community all over Africa, and and then. Um, you know, then Chinese revolution happened after Mao Zedong in 1949. So Mao has always been in support of decolonization all over the world. And, you know, one of the, um, you know, in fact, one of the big disagreement during the uh, Sino-Soviet split of early 1960s was that, um Khrushchev at the time he wanted to have a detente with the United States, but Mao disagreed and he felt he wish you know as communist they should push for worldwide revolution. They they should have continually to export revolution all over global south, which run counter to uh you know U.S. foreign policy uh, and. And so Mao supported national liberal liberal uh, liberalization movement all over the world, from Southeast Asia to Africa. Um, yeah. Mao um, Mao's China established relationship with um, with the government of of Ghana under the leadership of. Um, so at the time, the the Ghana president was uh, was a Pan Africanist. Um, this is a this is a pre okay. This is a president Kwame Nkrumah. You know Kwame Nkrumah is a uh, is a prime first prime minister and the president of Ghana, and he led the independence from the Britain in 1957. And he he was a strong advocate for Pan Africanism, and he was a founding member of the organization of African Unity, and so. In 1960, that's when um, Ghana and U.S. established uh, diplomatic ties. And in fact, at the time, the, the uh, Chinese premier, Zhou Enlai, went to the continent of Africa and he, he did a 12th country tour. And particularly, he met with um, uh, 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 Kwame Nkrumah and invited him to visit Beijing, which uh, Nkrumah did in 1964. And, and so, um, so Ghana supported, uh, you know, the, the PRC positions, and the PRC reciprocated with a lot of material support for the Ghana's uh, development. There were a lot of uh, Chinese engineers that were sent over to Ghana to help develop the local infrastructure. Um, in fact, uh, you know, Malcolm X, Malcolm X, during his African trip, he specifically talked about this. Uh, in the chapter, in the last answers and interviews, in, there's a chapter called the, the Red Chinese Ambassador in uh, Malcolm interviews. And he said, uh, what do I think about Red China in relation to Afro-Americans? Well, I think it is good to have center of power on this earth that aren't controlled from either Paris, London, or Washington, D.C. 
I think whenever you have some power on the African continent or the Asian continent that can act in an independent way, it actually serves your and my purpose better. Because the only time this man gives you and me a break is when he has something on the side of his house that he's worried about. Then he lets those on the inside of his house have a little bit more leeway than normal. Uh, here he's talking about ideological competition between um between the east and the west between the between the communist camp and the the u.s led capitalist camp but but in particular case he's talking about china and here he talked about his china uh, ghana trip he said plus when i was in ghana i had that opportunity in may and then again when i was in africa a couple of weeks ago to have dinner with a chinese ambassador there when I say the Chinese ambassador, I do not mean Jiang Kai-she's ambassador. I had dinner with a Chinese ambassador that represents some 700 million people. And I found the man to be very intelligent and very well informed. Now, he has to stress that this is a Chinese ambassador from mainland China rather than Taiwan, because in 1964, United States still only recognized uh, Jiang Kai-she's KMT government on Taiwan as a sole legitimate government of all of China. And the U.S. didn't have any diplomatic tie with the communist China back then. And 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 um, then Malcolm X continued. He said uh, he's talking about the Chinese ambassador. He said he acted more human than many of the Americans I have met. And he was well informed on the problem here. He didn't sound racist. He didn't sound fan fanatic. He did not sound unreal. He seemed to have a very objective picture in front of him. He didn't sound like he was anti-American. He didn't sound like he was anti-white. In fact, he told me it was silly for a person to be placed or allow himself to be placed in the position of a racist. Oh, that's my son crying in the background. <laughs> now, this is from Chinese ambassador who is projected by the American press as representing a country that strictly deals in racism. So even back in 1964, you, U.S. media is already portraying China as a racist country. You know, we have this from the words of Malcolm X, right? And the, the Mal Malcolm X, this is Malcolm X speech in December 12, 1964. He's saying, he's saying, you know, this by meeting the Chinese ambassador, this is nothing like the American media reported, uh, you know, because the American press is representing China only deals in racism. And and Malcolm X continued, he said, if he wanted to impress me since he had heard that I was a racist, because that's all they say I am, he should have been talking more, some of that racist talk to me. Instead, he was telling me that it's not, it's not wise and intelligent for a person to take the position of a racist because you cannot defend it. And this is true. You cannot take a racist position and defend it. No, you don't have anything to base it on. So... Malcolm X goes on, you know, he talked about how the, the red Chinese ambassador had a had a big influence on him. And this this red Chinese ambassador, by the way, is a, a, one of the top Chinese diplomat at the time, Huang Hua, who would have uh, presided, uh, became one of the first U, uh, Chinese ambassador to UN um, after China's entrance to uh, PRCs in People's Republic of China's interest into UN in 1971. And so, um, so you know, Malcolm X um, also, he, he talked about 
when he was in in Africa, he met Chinese everywhere. Or there's Chinese in Africa any everywhere because at the time、uh, Mao was sending a lot of the Chinese experts coming to Africa to help build schools, hospitals,、uh, stadiums, railroads.、Uh, one of the important、um, Uh, most important aid project to Africa was the Tanzara Railway. So at the time,、um, the African, you know, the the white white apartheid regimes still hold control in both South Africa and what they call Rhodesia, which became、uh, later became Zimbabwe. So the country of Zambia, which gained its independence. But but Zambia was a landlocked country, and before you know, under the because of the, the the way the British set up the their the colonial economic structure, the mines of Zambia have to travel on the railroads through um through the white control Rhodesia to South Africa, then get processed and exported to the world. So during the during the nineteen sixty nineteen seventies, there was a There was a liberalized. There was a liberalization struggle、uh, in in Rhodesia, in the white controlled Rhodesia. The Robert Mugabe led the struggle to achieve independence for his people from the white apartheid regime, and and Zambia as a neighbor of.、Um, Uh, Robert Mugabe, by the way, he received a lot of assistance, both economic and、uh, military assistance, from the People's Republic of China because、uh, Mao's China fully supported the the decolonization on on African continent. And while the,、um, you know Robert Mugabe was waging his war of liber-、uh, liberation against、uh, the white. Colonial settlers in Rhodesia,、uh, the country of Zambia that did gain independence,、um, they they face a problem because,、um, you know, they are they they are they are landlocked, and the only way to ship out their、uh, ores, their their mines, is is through this racist regime of Rhodesia. So. This is where Mao China offer、uh, assistance. This then they、uh, China decided to build、uh, what's known as Ta Tazara Railway, which link the country of Zambia、um, to to Tanzania, another country, Africa East African country on the coast. So instead of、uh, having the the Copper ore of Zambia traveling on railroads into Rhodesia, to white control Rhodesia. Now they have an outlet to the ocean, to the ports, and and the project was built from 1970 to 1975 as a turnkey project, financed and supported by China. Turnkey project meant that. China built the entire railway from start to finish, and at after they finish the railway, they turn it over to the government of Zambia, and and this was done with no no you know no cost at at Zambia. This this time the construction、uh, Tanzara railway at this time was a single、um, was one of the biggest foreign aid project. Uh, undertaken by China in Africa at a construction、uh, cost of four hundred million USD dollars, which 
at the time, which would be equivalent of 2.7 billion USD dollar today. And, and this China did this free of charge. They, they, they built a real, and this Tar, Tarzaro was also in 1975, was the longest railway in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, China built the railway, handed over to the government of, of Tanzania, and and uh, you know Tarzara railway actually faced a lot of operation difficulties, uh, but China helped uh, Tarzara railway to keep afloat by continue assist, continue financial assistance, and 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 today you know China is now back in Africa, building. New railroads, uh, the most recently completed uh, railroads is a standard gauge railway uh, in Kenya. Um, to, 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 uh, this is, and, 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 and China is actually now building railways, railways all over Africa, updating the, the old decrepit colonial uh, infrastructure and building brand new, new ones. And uh, so, so now you have trains running in in Kenya that that's run faster than trains in the United States. Um, and, and so, during Mao's China, it's not just economic assistance. There's also military assistance. Assistance. Uh, Mao supported the Algerian independence uh, during the Algerian independence movement against the French colonial rule. China supplied. Uh, not just rhetorically, but also supply weapons um, to the to the Algerian resistance against the French colonial regime, and and this this happened this pattern happened all over Africa. Uh, so so to to I just I just find it um, amusing that even back in 1960s, while China was pouring in um, financial military. Uh, economic assistance to Africa at the time when China is itself was still very poor, U.S. was portraying China as a very racist country. Well, back then, when they say China is racist, they mean China is racist against white people. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, um, so this, this is kind of the short summary of, of the kind of the relationship we, uh, between China and Africa um, under Mao in the Mao era, because at that time also in the 1960s, 1970s, also corresponded to the time of um, the, the decolonization period in, in Africa, when a lot of African nations finally gained their independence from, from their European um, colonizer like Britain, Portugal, uh, France, etc., uh, and, and a lot of them desperately needed um, assistance because you know the way um, the European colonies were set up, they, they, they were set up a extract extractive economies where the Europeans that control all the mines, all the ports, all the all the roads, all the infrastructure, and the European engineers you know, are in control of the operations. They didn't train the Africans, you know, the, the Africans only staff the kind of the lowliest man, uh, manual labor. Uh, they, you know, you, you, you either in, play, in, in place of army, in place of 
government, you know, the European officers will be leading the leading the colonial troops in in the in the government uh, from the, the mid to the high rung um, government officials, all white Europeans, and and so that's why when Europeans suddenly got, got you know, there's a lot of racist talk about how. Uh, you know, after the the African nations gained their independence, their their country just fell apart. This is this is to ignore the the fact that these these African colonies were set up to run as as basically resource extraction uh, commodity uh, producing regions for for the Europe for the imperial core European countries, and and when the Euro- Europeans left. Uh, there's nobody to man, you know, like the machinery. Nobody, nobody who were trained and qualified to run the infrastructure to maintain the. And it's it, it was a mess. Of course, it was a mess. And and this, you know, China provided a lot of assistance to newly independent nations like Ghana to help them to get get um uh, <laughs> to put them on the on their foot, uh, and. And this, this is this is also part of the history that's very rarely understood in the West. You know, like now today, all we hear is about China. Uh, China is practicing neo-colonialism in Africa, which is totally ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I think it's not just ridiculous. It's it's, it's quite disgusting, frankly. You know, these. I agree. You know, in in the Belgian Congo. European colonizers were cutting off the limbs of Africans who did not meet the quota of producing ivory, right? And and right now the the, the current China African relations is based on bilateral consensual ties. You know, China unlike unlike the Europeans who actually drive their gunboats to Africa and force African nations to to submit. China is not putting a gun to anybody's head to to have a trade relationships. Uh, you know, again, you know, China is not forcing anyone to take in on Chinese loans. These, you know, to say that China is debt trapping Africa is actually racist because it ignores the African agency in entering these deals with China. I mean, these these are sovereign African nations. These are African governments who deal with the Chinese government on an equal basis. So to, 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 to suggest this is any kind of moral equivalence between that and, and the, what the European colonial settlers did in Africa, that's just, I, that's just very disgusting propaganda. I agree. I think that's what I, I'm seeing a lot of on social media and on like uh, YouTube is, you know, is like, a, you know, the West or like Americans, British, painting China as like um, trying to put, you know, African countries or other countries in debt traps. And even like people that I think, or the people that claim to be on the left in the US, they will still call China imperialist or neo-colonial. I'm like, that's not, do you not understand politics? Like basic politics, my guy. Right, just relax before you call names. And yeah, <laughs> go ahead. And, and it's like Mao said, right? No, no right to speak without investigation. <laughs> when yeah. the, these 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 so-called leftists, most of the information are from these, you know, propaganda channels like CNN or BBC and Wall Street journals, even. 
um, and and they think they they know uh, uh, about a subject which is quite complex from these uh, you know basic propaganda mouse pieces and and it's funny because we know in you know even a lot of us who live in us we instinctively we know not to trust the us government you know on a lot of the domestic issues but because when it comes to foreign policy a lot of time we don't have the you know frame of reference of the context um a lot you know it's kind of very lazy intellectualism is that the people just choose to to believe the 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 state department official line i mean that's what the u.s press corps do they literally just par parallel the lines of the u.s state department and that's them being fed to the populace and 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 you know a lot of the problem is also ignorance uh because you know people are waking up to the fact you know us has done horrible things in latin america for example because latin america is a lot closer and culturally you know easy to understand uh, so you know people understand us is doing uh horrible things and shady things to 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 cuba to Bolivia, to Venezuela, uh, but then they choose to believe everything the U.S. press said. They they know to ignore the U.S. press when when you know it comes to countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Bolivia, etc. But they 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 turn around to when it comes to China, they just believe everything the the, the media says. It's it's total disconnect, and 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 I think it's just a very it's easier lazy intellectualism, and and I think some some part of it is also um you know there's a lot of ops right there's a lot of ops on the left left has been infiltrated by, <laughs> by for, for a long long time right i mean there's yeah. a lot of pseudo left um that are obvious ops that, that that you know just there to sow disinformation basically to to kind of fragmentize any kind of united solidarity movement with uh with others with other successful examples of socialist revolution, right? I mean, like it's it's totally ridiculous when <clears throat> Western left is trying to say, "Oh no, we we can't we can't follow the example of you know China, uh, Vietnam, the uh, you know Cuba, Venezuela because they're authoritarian." And it's like, okay, so what? example are you going to follow then you know what what what, you, what have you achieved in your home country you know right now you're just a bunch of talks like how about to learn to from the actual successful examples um but you know that's what the mainstream media is preventing us from from doing it is preventing the solidarity because that's what they're afraid of i agree i think um it's it's you know I think these like these ops or the Western or even that Western media they they use tactics or they use like these weird tactics uh, that are are kind of like pseudo leftists. It's like oh that person's anti-black. Oh this is anti-black. Yes. And when it's like when it's this really shallow analysis of the situation, you know, instead of like saying hey understanding the history of China. Or understanding, you know, for example, I think we talked about this very, very early on within the within the uh, this series. Is uh, I'm, I remember back in early 2000s, so it has to be like 2002, 2003, when like YouTube first started coming out, right? And there was these videos 
of like, oh, you know, the common, you know, there's no culture in China because the Communist Party took over. It's a really <laughs> bad, really bad videos. I actually, I actually get mad at these videos, but you know. <laughs> we we all know where that comes from, but I was yeah. Like, I, that and now we know a lot of those YouTube videos are financed by Falun Gong, right? The, yeah. the, the the Chinese cult that's also backed by financially backed by the U.S. government. Uh, you know, I recently had an interview with uh, independent journalist Joshua Levine. Uh, he actually uh, filed a freedom of information uh, request to the U.S. government about you know funding of Falun Gong, and it turns out yes. They are being funded by, uh, uh, at that time, at the, this was back in 20, uh, 2017 or 2018. And at the time it was, uh, it was funded by BBG, the uh, Broadcasting Board of Governors. And now that agency has been renamed to like U.S. Agency for Global Media, which manages uh, the stellar cha media channels such as Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Liberty, Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, basically all the propaganda mouthpieces. And they also finance the, all the Falun Gong media efforts. It, uh, like that answered the question for me because before I'm like, there's no way Falun Gong has that many, you know, kind of wealthy followers to fund their multi-million or multi-billion dollar media empire. Because Falun Gong, our media outreach is everywhere. Their presence, yeah. not only on social media, but, you know, like the Senyun posters, like we talk about, they're everywhere. They're, they're newspapers, you know, delivered to your front door free of charge. Buying ads on Facebook, it's it's uh it's it's this is you know it's it's crazy because um you know u.s government we, when we talk about china uh you know the the, the the common talking points is that oh the chinese people are these brainwashed automatons and they have all been propagandized but united states itself is the most propagandized country in the world and people yeah. don't even realize it it's <laughs> through all these different ch media channels I think the other aspect of this, like um, within the last couple of years that has come out about this like claim that China is anti-Black or anti-African is that during COVID, there's videos that came out. Um, I don't know, do you want to talk about that? Like there was like this lady that tried to go in the hospital, but because of COVID, she couldn't go inside or something like that. And, right, and a lot right. of people were reposting these videos. and. Yeah. You know, it's making these claims, and I was like, "Well, you know, I was like, I don't know the backstory of these videos, but that is a very blanket statement to make." You know, so um, you know, like there's, you know, it's not to say there's no issues in China. Um, you know, in China, often, especially during the 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 initial uh, COVID outbreak, you know, China, you know, put out very stringent. Uh, countermeasures and and this happened in Guangzhou so maybe this is a time for me to kind of shift to gear to kind of the modern China Africa relationship because um, you know I talk about kind of the China African relationship back in the Mao's era and and so what a lot of people don't understand is the current China Africa relationship was built up on the foundations of the China-African relationship that was built prior under Mao. So when, as China itself become wealthier, 
you know, starting through 1980s, um, and 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 China has also opened up its economy. There has been more, um, you know, relationship, particularly trading relationship with African nations, uh, because China is starting to. As China's population grew and 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 Chinese economy grew larger, China started to need more uh, commodities to import more commodities as producing by by Africa, and and that's that's why um, you know China is also helping the African nation to upgrade their infrastructure, their ports, their roads, um, uh, you know the the whole works, and and, and that's where kind of the became the backbone of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? The, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is something that officially formalized in 2012, uh, you know, when Xi Jinping came to power. But, but really, it's, it's just a, a formulation, a formal official formulation of a project that has been taking place basically since 1980s. Um, you know, because as China to trying to explore to expand more uh, of its trade relationship with outside world, particularly in the global south, um, as a result, you know, a lot of Chinese companies, you know, they went to Africa. Uh, a lot of the Chinese companies that was responsible for building infrastructures, uh, building hospitals, building roads, and then uh, you know, it's also Chinese people. Um, because initially, uh, initially when 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 China went to Africa to build roads, they brought in Chinese workers. You know that, that's one of the criticism for China infrastructure project is that they you know they they bring in their own workers, not providing enough job opportunity for the local Africans. That has been changed. I mean, nowadays a lot of the Chinese infrastructure project in Africa. Um, you know, most of the uh, the great majority of workers are now local Africans. But initially, back in nineteen eighties, because the, the the Chinese company, it's their first kind, it's a kind of the first experience abroad. It's their first um, first uh, effort time effort in Africa. You know, back then they they uh, you know to to operate to to able to you know build everything quickly they brought in their own workers for the sake of convenience. And that, I mean, that's how the Tanzara railway was built. You know, China brought their own workers from China in 19, from between 1970 and 1975 to, to build up this Tanzara railway from scratch and then turn it over to the, uh, to the Zambian and Tanzanian government. And, and, and that, that, Initially, that model was uh, was used in 1980s uh, because you know also at that time uh, the wage labor in China was was um, was still very low compared to international standards. So so also uh, it's from an economic point of view uh, at that time. Uh, I remember China was actually exporting labor to. As far as Middle East, I remember uh, NHK Silk Road series in 1980s. They went to um, the desert of Iraq, and then they found a Chinese road crew building a road, a highway linking Iraq and Syria. Um, and and I know back then there's a lot of because um, in 1980s uh, one of the problem one of the problem that forced China to reform is also because 
Chinese populations have um, have ballooned to to one billion people. You know, from from 1960, 1960 Malcolm X time, it was still 700 million. But in 1980s, it was one billion people, and to, to provide jobs for all these people. And one of the way China did was to export labor to places like wealthy oil producing regions like Iraq. That was before Iraq was wracked by by Iraq war. And and so they they are yes. So so initially they did you know bring their own Chinese workers to to the African continent. That also led uh, you know some Chinese to stay on behind. Um, you know, there was there was already a long running Chinese community in South Africa, like I said, back from the 19th century, but also Chinese community in Madagascar and in Western African colonies uh, at, at the turn of the century, especially after World War One. But now they, after 1980s, after China opened up again, these traditional Chinese community are reinforced by new arrivals. Um, a new way for Chinese arriving in Africa to do business, to trade, to work, um, and then uh, you know, as as China, uh, of course, as as, as China develops, as the Chinese wage rises, uh, 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 you know, the, the the Chinese company doing business in Africa, they gradually, you know, you hire more local African workers, also because. You know, in the in the process of uh, building this infrastructure, there's also a lot of training uh, involved to train the local African uh, workers to to uh, in 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 technical skills. So by now, uh, now we're talking about 2022. A lot of the Chinese infrastructures on the African continent, uh, majority they actually employ majority African local labor who had been trained. By these Chinese companies in the technical skill needed, so so there is, uh, and that's a very important thing to notice. Like, for example, the the standard gauge railway uh, that China built in Kenya, China part of the deal is China will build the railway, um, also using Kenyan labor, but they also have to train. Kenyan railway workers, you know, to operate the train to 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 uh to 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 help to maintain the railway, and and there's also like the the trans the, there's a there's like a skill transfer involved in this project, and um and that's when uh you know there was a lot of alarmist uh. Western media reporting, like uh, you know, people are saying, "Oh my God, there's a million Chinese in Africa." To Africa is China's second continent. Africa is becoming a a new new Chinese colony. Uh, you know, that, that's when those reports start coming up. But at, at, it, the flip side of that coin during this exchange is not just Chinese coming to Africa, but Africans coming to China to trade, to study, to work. And at one point, Guangzhou, the southern port city of Guangzhou, which is one of the first Chinese coastal city opened up for for trading with the outside world, um, kind of regained its status as kind of the international cosmopolitan port city, and it hosted around two hundred thousand Africans from from various African nations, um, and. And then the I think the, there were some Western media report kind of 
kind of dub uh, the the African quarter in Guangzhou as Chocolate City. I think it's kind of racist term, um, and. Uh, and then the at the time, uh, you know, a lot of, also a lot of Africans who, uh, you know, first there's a lot of African students who came to China starting to from Mao's era to study, you know, to 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 study in the Chinese university. I, I grew up in China in 1980s. I remember, you know, back then there were Chinese African students on Chinese government scholarships to come to China to to study. To study the language, to study uh, you know technical skills, and and th- that that trend have continued, and then uh, and then this uh, the traders that the business were uh, the 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 Africans were doing cross border trade because they they realized uh, you know because Africa started you know. Chinese made goods starting to uh, go all over the world, and and a lot of the Africans realized they could get uh, get the goods cheaper if they go directly to the source where it's manufactured in China, and so that's why the, a lot of them relocated to Guangzhou, the port city in southern China near the manufacturing hub, and they directly then source these goods back to. Uh, you know their relatives and friends back into Africa for resale, and and that that became a booming uh, trade. So, so this is why there, there have been a, such a large, vibrant African community in Guangzhou for a long time, and 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 now now we can talk get to the talk about the issues right that the, the, the African uh, face in China. So so it is true. There's uh you know when people of completely different cultural background put together. And sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding. Sometimes there's a lot of, um, a lot of the, you know, issue arise. One of the, one of the uh, uh, persistent issue is, uh, you know, because a lot of, um, uh, China was pretty, basically very open at this time. Uh, unlike U.S., which has tightened its borders, especially after 9-11, um, at the time it was, you know, this before COVID, it was very easy to come to China. Uh, there's actually a, 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 a community of Syrian and Iraqi refugees on the coastal China in in Yiwu, in in Zhejiang province, for example, and and um, and for Africans, they they just needed tourist visa to come to China. A lot of the African traders, especially a small time cross border merchants, they took the opportunity um, to you know like a, they apply for the tourist visa, they come to China. And starting to send goods back to China, but then uh, a, a lot of them overstay their visa. So, so that's that's a, a common problem. You know, a lot of people kind of overstay their visa, and then and because because once they they overstay the, their visa, their their status become illegal, and they they cannot, um, you know, they kind of have to keep down low. They they cannot use social services, uh, etc. In China. And and then during the COVID pandemic, um, what happened was, you know, China had strict lockdowns all over, um, you know, first starting Wuhan. But when the COVID and I, I think this is around 2020 or 2021, um, COVID cases started 
in Guangzhou, and it was first reported among the the African diaspora community there. So the local government in Guangzhou, they uh, so they that's why they um, did a very strict lockdown. Uh, but what happened was there there were some uh, racist landlords uh, who, because of the COVID, they decided. Um, they're just going to evict their African tenants. And that that caused a big problem that that was reported all over media, you know, initially in the Chinese media, you know, before even broke out news even broke out in, in Western English media, it broke in Chinese media, and then it, it was all over African media. And then Chinese government took immediate action because once it's, it's been reported everywhere, they address the issue. They 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 forbidden the, the the landlords from evicting from evicting Africans. Um, and and another problem was the um uh was the services. You know, like we talk about um uh the Africans in China face some of the same problem as foreigners in China. So if you in China you have um, WeChat. Everybody is have a phone, smartphone, and with WeChat app, you can do a lot of things. You just scan a QR code, you're in. Uh, but a lot of the services was designed for the Chinese citizens. Uh, you know, for example, if you go to the train, uh, you know, Chinese citizens can just scan their ID, the Chinese government issue ID, and then they're let in. But if you have a pack, if you're... If your ID is a foreign passport, like I was, like when I was in China, I, I can't just do a scan at the at the gate. I have to go to the actual ticket office, show them my passport, and then manually get let in. And and that also happens to, and uh, you know this this became an issue during COVID because you know COVID, um, you know the the China implemented the uh, the trace. Um, Kind of the the the, the uh, what's it called the trace program, um, and and they uh, everybody was issue have like a QR code on their WeChat. You can scan the uh, the WeChat and and the, if your QR code it shows up your your health code is green. You know you have your low risk. Then okay you can you can you can be going about in public, going to certain places like shopping mall and stuff, but. You know, if you don't have that, if you don't have the QR code, or if you don't have the a Chinese issue ID, that could be a problem. That's when you know you get denied services. So, so, and 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 for particularly for Africans, they, you know, from their perspective, it's understandable. They they just know they have been denied services, right? And 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 then and, and they're they're also. Um, uh, you know, individual businesses who who put in stupid, you know, racist rules that they because they hurt the the, the COVID community, uh, the COVID uh, originating African community in the beginning. So they started saying, okay, we're not going to serve that African clientele. Um, that that did happen, and and when it was reported in the media, the Chinese government cracked down on that. They they, they <laughs> because they didn't want to. Want that to hurt the, the 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 good relationship China had with the African government back on the African continent, 
because a lot of this news got filtered back to Africa, and it was kind of reported, as you say, like the racist behavior of the Chinese. And but but the Chinese government took action, and and these these. These issue have been addressed. I actually have a friend, a uh, African American friend uh, in China, uh, Dana Showtime. Um, uh, Dana have came to my show. He he's a African American from Detroit, and he lived in China for twenty two years. And he told what he told me was he tracked the issue down in Guangzhou closely through his friends, um, uh, through his friends down there. And he what he told me he said it's not. It's not at all as the Western media portrayed, and I'm I I I'm supposed to bring him back to do a specific um like an episode uh specifically on the black experience in China, and and he is going to talk about exactly you know what he found out you know like I uh at right at this point I don't have all the informations, but I'm hoping to get more information from Dana, and what Dana has told me is that. You know, it's it's complete. It, a lot of the media reports in in English language media is there's a lot of exaggeration. Um, they're blowing things up. Uh, they're 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 blowing things way out of proportions. And and hopefully when he comes to my podcast, so can still. I, I'm doing a little plug for my own podcast here again. When he comes That's to my Silk and Steel podcast to do uh, a episode specifically on this issue, you know, we will learn more. Yeah, that's all I have to say. That's good. I, I look forward to listening to that. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you you know you clarified all this. I was going to ask you what the reaction of the local people that did not support these racist uh, shop owners or landlords. What did they do? You know, or the government? But you know, you answer that. Uh, and you know, it's. Um, I just you know the purpose of this episodes to show one the history of China and Africa and <clears throat> that is a lot more than uh, this really shallow view that of like just China being imperialist the Communist Party being you know imperialists or neo-colonial whatever <clears throat> without understanding the historical aspect of between China and, and Africa and the Communist Party of China and Africa and you know uh, I think uh what this is whole this whole series is based on that to you know to, to dispel mis mis uh disinformation about China. Um I just you know we have to be really careful when we, we when we listen to Western media and like so-called quote unquote leftist <laughs> that could be ops, you know, in, in yeah. a, some social media. So like like you know like Vosh or whatever. Anybody, you know, I keep ripping on Vosh, but everybody hates Vosh, so <laughs> But that's that's that's, that's yeah. you know uh, that's the nature of things. <laughs> but yeah. um, I think um, it's I, I like I said like I said before on this podcast with you. I I'm supporter of of the Communist Party of China. Yeah. I I I see, I see China the Communist Party of China as like a liberation movement, as a decolonial movement. I think recently didn't like Argentina. Uh, uh, also open trade, open um, more diplomacy with China too. Was it was like last week? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so Argentina officially signed up on the Belt and Road Initiative with China yeah. as 
you know, I, I think I think I think maybe Ecuador or Nicaragua did the same. Uh, you know, more and more. Uh, you know, also Cuba. Cuba did that as well. So so you know, right now, uh, you know, the people don't understand. Um, so the rationale belt and road initiative. So they try to project it, try to treat it the same as, uh, you know, compare with a Western colonial experience, because really in, in, in US, we just don't have good models. You know, they think how every, there's this so fucked up thing is that people just assume the, the way US deal with the world is a norm, right? <laughs> and so they, they assume that everybody else must behave in the same appalling manner. And and in it, the, the the rationale of Belt and Road Initiative uh, is that China has built a lot of productive capacity in the last 20, 30 years, um, especially in the last thirty years, and especially you know du during the building the the, the 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 building of the infrastructure, great infrastructures inside China. There, there have been a lot of Chinese construction companies, China, Chinese equipment companies. A lot of these companies has been created. But right now, China, even though China is continuing to, to build more high-speed rail, build more bridges um, and tunnels, but, but at this point, China has, a lot of places in China has been built out, right? So these companies have to look for growth outside of China. And and build and road initiative makes sense because you know the Chinese government will provide loans to these companies to enable them to to take their business abroad to 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 go build roads and bridges and tunnels and schools and hospitals in the global south countries where they are most needed, and and this this serve couple ways. One, it, it kind of served to alleviate the kind of overcapacity in China. But you also build up the infrastructure in the global south that enable these other countries to to come into a tighter economic integration with China. And, and to talk about this whole trap issue, you know, like when China builds a port in Africa, it's a freaking port, you know, like that anybody can use a port. <laughs> the port, like you, the port is on the ocean. It's not like that. Uh, oh, China is trapping that African nation by building a port there. That allowed that African nation to trade with the rest of the world. Every anybody can use a port, right? Uh, people don't. People kind of just mentally kind of skip that. I think and, they're just projecting their stupidity when they yes. think to be shit. Yeah, man. And it's yes, hard and, because. Go ahead. Sorry. And and a lot of the talk about so-called debt trap. Guess what? That's what IMF and World Bank does for decades. Exactly. And and and, and on top of and the and the all these debt that World Bank and IMF pile up on African nations, show me the roads, show me the airports, you know, show me the ports, show me the the, the, the railways. Where are they? You know, and, and that's that's the difference. You know, like what what China offers the alternative to the IMF and to the World Bank. So, so African nations don't have to go beg for funds from these Western institutions. And, and that's what threatens the US-led 
you know, hegemonic world order because now there is a China alternative. Now the African nations don't have to be beholden to IMF and the World Bank. And, and, and you know, what China does is actually offering competition. You know, like like now now there's more choice. It's offering more choice. You know, again, China is not sailing its aircraft carrier into Africa and forcing the African nation to sign trade deals. Yeah. These African nations are signing trade deals with China on a free of their free will. You know, people totally ignoring the African agency. These are sovereign African nations. They're making their own decisions. Right. I mean, it's 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 ludicrous for these for these Western journalists who are usually white and European and to say that they know the best for the Africans and the Africans themselves. That's what they're actually saying when they're saying that trap, that trap is they're saying like, like, no, 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 no. China is bad. You don't know how bad China is. Why do you do this to yourself? But Africans are in charge of their own nation, national affairs. You know, they know better than you, Mr. Big Shot Journal from NYT, you know, who, who, who just landed at the airport. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. At the same time, you know, you know, the IMF and the World Bank, when they open up trade with these third world countries, or, you know, like lesser developed countries, African countries, South America, anywhere else, they usually put conditions you know, yes. and, and, and these countries have to privatize, you know, their, their resources for pennies, you know, and it's controlled by a really small group of people, just like in the U.S. So they have like, they, they control the oligarchy there, the elites. So, you know, it, it's, it's fuck the IMF. <laughs> yeah. The Bank. Like, like so but the Chinese, you know, you're right. It, it gives another, uh, it gives another, uh, it's competition, but you know these capitalists don't don't like competition. They want to be the ones in power. They claim they want competition as long as they control the competition, right? So and that's yeah, a problem. Exactly. I mean, a lot of this talk about so-called neocolonialism. That's what have Europeans have been doing, you know, since since 1970s after they let their colonies go free you know you know look at france a lot of the african you know under the the, the the their structure a lot of the african wealth is still being recycled through the france you know a lot of the uh you know these these uh, oligarchs that they supported deposit their money in european banks you know like that's how europe and us continue to benefit and and their racket has been threatened by, by China coming to the scene. And that's why they're kicking and screaming um, and, and doing a lot of projection. And uh, this, this, it's, 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 it's totally disingenuous. It's very disgusting. And, and you, know, you, you, you know, you like, I, I would lessen, you know, if uh, from like a local African journalist, you know, to talk about issues between China and Africa than some, white reporter from <laughs> NYT or Wall Street journals. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I don't make the rules. <laughs> and before before I started this podcast, I, I was you know talking just within comrades that uh, even in native circles that we as native like sovereign native communities should do business with China, right? And you know with because we, we native communities have economies ourselves. And I think 
it would benefit both China, like extend the Belt Road Initiative into the U.S. to, to the native communities. Yes, <laughs> Take, you know. <laughs> yes, because you know the, the native communities are sovereign nations. You know, yeah. they, the, the, the the treaties that signed with the United States were signed as sovereign nations, as equals. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know now U.S. U.S. government totally renege on all that. And, yeah, but I, and, I, I think I I, I uh, propose this idea, and I think. Uh, some people, some I, I remember I proposed it to uh, some native organization, and they were like, "No, <laughs> like, <laughs> what?" It was like the China is like a beacon of decolonization. How could we not, you know, extend our hand out to this, this yeah. country and, and you know ask for economic help, you know, well one way or the other? And I think, I think you know, sooner or later, you know, uh, I, I don't know if if some tribal communities have done business with China, but I think it would behoove us as, as you know, as sovereign nations in the U.S. to do business, economic business with China. So it's just yeah. an idea. So I'm putting that out there. <laughs> um, you know, for people who want more like scholarly uh, um uh, studies on China-African relations, I, I recommend the works of Deborah Brodigan, uh, you know, who who is an actual scholar who devote her field is China Africa studies and 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 for like a real detail uh learning about actual uh China African relations you you can also I think she she also had some made some appearances in media you probably can find on YouTube Deborah Brodigan on China Africa and yeah don't don't listen to media uh talking heads man they're they're just they're just you know propagandists um uh, yeah, so we, uh, is it, um, do, do, do we manage to cover? <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Oh, you want to talk I, about I, yeah, exactly. And I think this is a topic that was overdue, you know, and I, I, I especially during COVID, there's, you know, but we cover so many things on this series. Uh, and like I said before, on this episode, on the other episodes, is that this series is to dispel any disinformation because there's a fuck ton of disinformation about China or, you know, communism, you know, and I think we need to, or the history of China, and I think we need to uh, understand China, you know, not through the Western media or through like the pseudo leftists or like just Americans in general, through the Chinese people themselves, you know, in its history and understand that their, you know, their struggles are struggling. And that was from the very first episode uh, where you know you talked about the the connection between the colonization colonization of China with the colonization of the Native Americans in the U.S. And I think our struggle or our struggle to decolonize and to liberate ourselves is intertwined, you know. And you know, decolonization is a global uh, fight. It's not just you know uh, isolated. And I think you know, I think uh, the the stronger China gets, the the happier I get. <laughs> so yeah i mean yeah. right now like china is building a trans africa continental railway and and you know it's linking southern and northern uh i mean i'm sorry east and west africa for the first time they're they're building railway all over china from angola to zambia they, they um to angola to zambia to kenya to ethiopia they're they're building a lot of the infrastructure project that 
you know, they're building more than what the European colonizer have done in hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, like the China did it in the past probably 10, 10, 20 years. And and this is a good thing. This 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 brings like a tighter global integration. And I I that's you know I believe that's what I believe. You know, like we need we're, we we need to be. There's need to be more global integrations. There's more need to be like a, a trade relationship on, on on more equal basis, and and that help like that helps everyone. You know, for, you know the the tight lift all boats, um, and 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 you know like right now it's just like a lot of the media talking heads in the west are kicking and screaming because they're seeing the kind of the the us the the western chokehold on the world is slipping away and and that's what they're really worried about and, and so but they they rephrase it in terms like oh authoritarian <laughs> you know chinese authoritarianism you know is, is encroaching on the world what they're really saying is us hegemony is crumbling piece by piece. Yeah, you know, I, I, as we're talking about China getting stronger, I do want to you know, talk about a little bit. Uh, during the holidays, I visited my stepfather. We talk about on this podcast, he's Chinese, he's from Hong Kong, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I had this conversation with him during Christmas dinner about how, like, I asked, I asked him a question was like, you know, you know, he's like 60 years old, he's, you know, he's old. Uh, he's in the mid sixties, uh, and I, I asked him, uh, you know, since you were a kid to now, are you surprised how strong China has gotten? He was like, he worked like he was happy. He was like, I'm happy that we're able to talk back to other, you know, to, to Western politicians, you know. And I uh, think he gave me a, a perfect uh, an example of something he saw on on the you know on Chinese TV. Uh, and he was like, that's the moment he knew that, you know, that we, they're never going to go back to getting colonized again. Never. Yeah. You know, he said he was like, uh, he's happy, you know, he's retired right now, but uh, he has a lot, you know, very, very good faith and, you know, the future uh, and, you know, the, China, the Chinese people, the economy. And, you know, uh, he wishes he can go back, but because COVID is kind of hard to go back. Uh, but um, it's just, you know, having these conversations one-on-one -on -one with him about <laughs> how the U.S. is crumbling and Chinese is rising. <laughs> it's like yeah. the best conversations <laughs> ever. But, you know, I, I just, I, I really feel like uh, it's very exciting. I mean, even in my time, seeing, you know, uh, the British get, get, you know, give back Hong Kong, go give back, quote-unquote, you know, slowly. And, uh I think it was in 97, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and and seeing that and seeing how, you know, my family was, you know, happy about that. And now you can talk to them. This pride of like not being, I don't know, just being strong again, strong nation. I think that this is, this is what, uh, I mean, it's happy to see that. I'm having to have this conversation. It's yeah. Just, I mean, I, for, you know, I, we talk about movies a lot. I, I highly recommend the, um, kind of the the early Jet Li movie made in Hong Kong, uh, the the Once Upon a Time in China. And if you if you see a lot of these uh, earlier Hong Kong movies, there's a there's a lot of strong anti-colonial message, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because people people in Hong Kong they 
they understand. They didn't want him to be ruled by British colonial masters. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, you also reflect back on that kind of colonial experience. Now, now it's it's kind of, you know life and day experience uh, i mean and and i i also highly recommend people to check out some of these african capitals that have been recently built up by you know by china you know by chinese construction firms that they they you know like the because i remember in 19 even in 1990 i say 1998 uh, i was i remember we had a kenyan exchange students in caltech and you know uh, one of our residential counselors are still kind of joking about uh, with him saying oh like did you guys have shoes you know did you guys live in huts you know like 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 still like so the i mean even a residential counselor from caltech you know one of the top elite school in united states you you, you would think people are educated and and they people still assume that you know yeah, Africa. All Africans live in like very primitive conditions. But but you know, I I suggest people to check out some of these uh, new African infrastructures that have been recently built up by China. It's very impressive. Uh, like not not it's not the not your grandpa's African cities anymore. So anyway, I, I that's all I have to say. Yeah. Talking about movies, I saw the battle on Lake Changjin. I think Changjin. Okay. Yeah. Did you watch cool. it? Did it. you watch everything? Yeah, I watched everything. Uh, I saw I saw half of it, so no 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 spoilers, please. I saw <laughs> I I saw only I saw up to like the, the their first big battle when the, like the tanks <laughs> when the when they had a little tank tank fat tank face off that, that I saw that that's where I stopped. Uh, but it was, no, it was so far movie. so good. Yeah, it was a good movie. I liked it. I, I recommend it. it. You know, it's it was. Uh, uh, we saw it on like uh, it was illegal cable. Oh yes, <laughs> you know, oh it's on that? YouTube now. It's on yeah, YouTube yeah, now. People, it's, people yeah. can find it on YouTube with English subtitles. So just yeah. search for search for the battle uh, at uh, Lake Changjin, and you you'll find it. Yeah. yeah, and then yeah, a week later I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and it's I high recommend. resolution too. It's yeah, like, I know. Four like K. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. But thank you for coming on. Don't hang up or don't log off so I can talk to you a little bit. <laughs> I appreciate sure. your time as always. If you are listening to this podcast, I recommend you go check out Carl's podcast, Stick Silk and Steel podcast, and sign up to the Patreon. And just listen to everything he has to say. Follow him on Twitter where he rips people apart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just, you know, just learn. You know, if you're you're American, just you know, just learn. Or you're anywhere in the West, just just please just uh, ask questions and learn, just like you know you would to any other community. Uh, thank you. Thank you.